Uh, I wonder if you remember the movie The Princess Diaries. Uh, Anne Hathaway plays Mia, an average teenager growing up in America. Uh, Mia's life is pretty normal until she discovers she's actually a princess, the heir apparent of, a small, uh, of the small European country of Genovia. Uh, her grandmother, the Queen, played by Julie Andrews, comes to America to tell her all about her inheritance. Uh, more wealth, power and influence than she could ever imagine, and it's all hers. But she never knew about it. Once she had the knowledge, she was able to access the life. Uh, and the movie is all about uh, how she learns, uh, adds to the knowledge, uh, all the skills and all the training that she's going to need to live the life that she was born to. Now, it's this sort of message that uh, Peter is bringing us here. He's written a letter because there are false teachers around who are promising all sorts of things for the Christian life. Uh, we'll find out more about them in chapter 2. But for the moment, it's enough to know that these false teachers are dragging Christians away with the temptation that there's something bigger and better. Something bigger and better. And Peter's answer to the challenge is simple. Christians don't need bigger and better. Christians already have everything they need to live a godly life. Did you see that extraordinary statement in verse 3? His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. If you're a Christian, you already have it all, given by God himself. That's the reality, but you just need to know it to first. You just need to know it so you can access it. And for Peter, knowledge is the key. Verse 2, grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. God's grace, God's peace are poured out to you when you know God and his son Jesus. He repeats the same idea in verse 3. How do you receive all that you need for life and godliness? Through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Whatever you need for a godly life comes through your knowledge of Jesus. If you're a Christian, someone who knows Jesus, you are already fully equipped. You're not the base model that needs upgrades. You have all that you need. Now what that means is that a full and satisfying life doesn't need extras. You don't need a top job, plenty of money, or lots of friends. You don't need a marriage or children or beauty or success or a great car or a great house. You just need Jesus. If you're looking for satisfaction or contentment or fulfilment in any of those things, then stop. They're empty wells, they're bare trees, they're not bad, but they can't give you everything you need for life and godliness. That can only come from knowing God through Jesus. And extra Christian things aren't the key either. We're often tempted to think that there has to be something more to the Christian life than what we have. This verse is telling us you can be completely equipped as a Christian. You can have grace and peace in abundance simply by getting to know Jesus better. There is no secret next level. You're not missing out. 
It's not healing or prosperity or deliverance or counselling. It's not a second baptism or a secret experience or a special course or a new prayer technique. Just know Jesus better. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. And that's what Peter's letter is going to do. It's going to give us the knowledge about Jesus. To begin with, verse 3, he's called us. He's called us by or for his own glory and goodness. He, He drew us to himself and he did it for a reason. He did it for his own glory and goodness. Or perhaps it's translated to his own glory and goodness. He's called us to his own glory and goodness that we may increasingly live out God's own qualities of glory or goodness. We've already seen it in the first half of the verse when we're told that we have all that we need for life and godliness or a life of godliness. Verse 4 puts it a slightly different way. Have a look at it. Through these, God's qualities of glory and goodness, through these he's given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature. Now we're only four verses in and there's already been two or three explosion sort of verses where you think, wow, what, what's underneath that? Well, Here's the second one, participating in the divine nature. God's plan for us is that our nature becomes like his. Uh, It's what the 4th century Christian Athanasius was getting at when he wrote, God became man that man might become God. Now it can be misunderstood and it's it's not saying that uh, like Eastern religions are saying that we become divine. Uh, He's not talking about that. He's saying we become like God. We become God-like in our character. It's not talking about attaining new levels. Uh, The goal of uh, participating in the divine nature is not about our personal development. There's more a relational aspect. I think the emphasis is on the relational aspect here. That word for participate is a word for fellowship. Through God's promises we may become partakers or partners in the divine nature. I think it's got the idea of uh, we become involved in the quality of life of the Trinitarian God. God's goal for us is that we become wrapped up in the life of the Trinitarian God, in his nature. What, What an extraordinary privilege that is. But just in case you think that that's going to be simple and gentle and easy and um, just rolling around on fluffy clouds, notice the hard edge to it. There's a negative side to participating in the divine nature as well. Notice how verse 4 continues. Participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption of the world caused by evil desires. To partner in the divine nature is going to take some tough decisions. The world is full of things that are going to be the enemy of that sort of godly life. Things that you'll need to run from. That are both corrupt and corrupting. Now there are obvious things. Things that are easy for us to identify. Things that are easy to run away from. 
But there are a whole lot of less obvious things as well. Evil desires that are within you. Now those can be harder to escape. The desire to fit in. The desire for approval. The desire for pleasure, to be comfortable, to take it easy. The desire to be successful or influential or powerful. The desire to avoid conflict and please people. Participating in the divine nature means to flee those sorts of desires too because those things can easily become things that we value and cling on to more than we do God. They become idols that we worship rather than God. Almost every time you get frustrated or impatient or angry, behind that, underneath that, is one of these things that you desire more than God. Every time you procrastinate, or a perfectionist, or you're lazy, or selfish, or driven, or obsessive, or anxious. Behind that, there's a desire, a a desire to, to be in control, or to be accepted, or comfortable. Or perhaps there's a fear that you won't have those things, and so you react. Partaking in the divine nature, it's more than just simply walking away from a certain suburb or a certain situation. It's it's about escaping the corruption of the world that's caused by evil desires that are within you. How, How can you stop that? How can you stop the influence of those desires? Well, I wonder if verse 4 doesn't give us a key there. He's given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature. God's promises, I suggest, are the tools we use to live out God's life. God's promises are the tools to live out God's life. Well, how does that work? Well, let's pick a couple. Let's begin with what the promise we've got here. God's promised to give us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Jesus. What do you do with a promise? Well, you trust it. If we trust that promise, we're not going to go searching for extra experiences. We will grow in contentment as we hold on to Jesus. We will learn to cherish him more. We will learn to desire him more. We will learn how desirable he is. And and as we learn to trust Jesus more, those other desires will lose their power. God promises, Matthew 6.33, if we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, he'll cover all our material needs as well. Now, as we trust that promise, we can let go of anxiety. We can let go of man's approval. And instead, we can seek Jesus' approval. We can seek to know him better. We can recognise more and more of his goodness and his beauty. And the things of this world that drag us away uh, become less attractive. Uh, God promises, Philippians 4, 6 and 7, that if we present our request to God, then the peace of God will guard our hearts and minds. Now what do you do with that promise? You trust it. As you trust that promise, uh, 
you can rejoice. You, you can begin to let go of anxiety because you've handed it over to God and, and you can be thankful for what you have. And that idol of anxiety and being in control loses its power. Now, we could go on. I, I think the Bible is full of all sorts of promises. And the more we know them and the more we trust them, the better equipped we are for life and godliness. Uh, the better equipped we are to be partakers of the divine nature, the better we're able to let go of evil desires and escape their corruption. God's promises are the tools to live out God's life. The picture is, I think, that Jesus is the king who's chosen you for a royal mission. He's commissioned you with a noble quest, uh, the mission of living a godly life. And then he gives you the key to the royal armoury, or maybe the fingerprint code for the electronic reader or something. Uh, This is the divine arsenal of the heavenly king at your disposal. His promises are there. His tools are there for you to claim and to use so that you are thoroughly equipped. Now, it won't be easy, this participating, this escaping. It won't be easy, which is what Mark and Catherine's kids' talk was about. But Peter goes on to talk about it, doesn't he, in the next paragraph. Verse 5, make every effort. It's going to take commitment to put on these things, to use the arsenal. It'll take intentionality. Make every effort to add to your faith. The word literally means to bring in alongside. You're the royal soldier in the army and you're adding one piece of equipment after another until you stand there thoroughly equipped, until you have everything you need. Interesting, it begins with faith, isn't it? Does that connect with the promises? I think it probably does. Yes, we need to trust Jesus as our Saviour and our Lord when we begin our journey with him, But we need faith every day to trust his promises because his promises are the tools for participating in the divine nature. Faith is how we begin, but faith is how we also live every day. And so we have to begin begin with faith, but then we add to it. We can add goodness to our faith. Now this is the same quality as God himself has in verse 3 when he calls us with his own glory and goodness. And we are to be partakers in God's nature, including partaking of his goodness. Goodness. Don't be someone who's just religious, dry and strict and judgmental. Add goodness to your faith. I wonder if it's not about a simple, attractive, admirable, gentle quality. A Christian man I know radiates goodness. It's not what you'd expect when you first meet him. He's muscly, he's a tradie, he's active, he loves his sport, but he's gentle and generous and caring. He's got a reputation for shedding a few tears if a song grabs him. And he gets teased when he lets out the worst expletive uh, when something goes wrong. Oh, goodness. I don't know what they make of that on the building site. But don't leave it at goodness. Add knowledge to your goodness. It's not enough just to be good. Add knowledge of right and wrong, of appropriate and inappropriate, of useful and hurtful, 
If you have goodness without knowledge, maybe you'll be naive. Maybe your goodness won't be applied as well as it could be. Add knowledge to your goodness, but don't leave it at knowledge. Add self-control to your knowledge. Knowledge about people and situations means that you can exploit them and take advantage of them. But if you add self-control to your knowledge, you'll have the ability to say no, to, to stop before your knowledge takes you too far. And while you're working on self-control, add perseverance to it. Self-control is not too hard for a short time, for an hour or a day. But it's the ability time after time to keep saying no, to keep control of your tongue, your emotions, your anger, your desires. Perseverance means sticking at a task, a ministry that seems thankless and hopeless and useless. Perseverance means sticking with a friend who's hard work but who needs you. Perseverance means sticking with prayer even when it feels like you're talking to yourself. Uh, let me tell you about perseverance. Uh, Barry was my youth group leader growing up in Gosford Presbyterian Church. He had stickability. Uh, he might, he, when I was growing up, he, he already seemed like he was 60, but he, he kept doing it for another 30 years that I knew him. For 30 years, every Sunday morning, he taught Sunday school. Every Sunday night, he led youth group and then went to church. And then every Friday night, it was an outreach youth group in another suburb. All while he worked full-time as an excavator, saving to buy and build a Christian camp. Now, he wasn't the most gifted or charismatic youth worker around, but he stuck at it year after year after year. And there are probably hundreds of people who, humanly speaking, have Barry to thank for being Christians today. Uh, but perseverance would be no good if you were doing it for the wrong reasons or with the wrong attitude. If you're sticking at something just to please yourself or to build your own empire or to, in your own strength, uh, it's no good. And so you need to add godliness to your perseverance. Your perseverance needs to be God-centred and God-focused and God-pleasing. Every day, committing your day to the Lord and handing it to him for his purposes, in his strength, for his glory. That's what godliness is. Every morning, begin with that prayer, Lord, today is your day. Today I am yours. Without you, I'm nothing. For your purposes, in your strength, for your glory. Add godliness to your perseverance. But don't leave it at that. Add brotherly kindness to your godliness. A genuine other person's warmth. Godliness without brotherly kindness can focus on a rigid self-righteousness. Finally, add love to brotherly kindness. I wonder if this corrective is about love that's beyond feelings, which is an act of the will. A decision that will put the needs of someone ahead of feelings. A choice to love, even when you don't feel it. Love will do or say the difficult thing, perhaps where brotherly kindness won't. 
Well, that's Paul's list. Uh, what it means to participate in the divine nature. Uh, but he goes on, if you, verse 8, if you work on those things more and more, he says they'll keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge. Now, it's a messy sentence. It's got double negatives in. Uh, and So trying to unwrap what that's about. But I do wonder if Peter hasn't put it that way for a reason. They'll keep you from being ineffective and unproductive. I think he's thinking about a certain type of believer. It's possible to know Jesus, to have your sins forgiven, to be one of God's children, but you're ineffective and unproductive. You're fruitless. You're stagnant. You're stale. In Jesus' parable of the soils, it's the soil with weeds that, that chokes the plant. So the plant doesn't thrive, a bit like my garden. It doesn't thrive, it, it's choked, it's unhealthy. Verse 9 gives a different picture of the same person, I think. If anyone doesn't have these Christian characteristics, he's nearsighted, being blind, and has forgotten that he's been cleansed from his past sins. <laughs> it's not developing these godly characteristics is evidence that your eyes don't work to see and appreciate God's promises. And your memory's failing as well. You've forgotten what it means to have your sins forgiven. You're not living out what it means to have sins forgiven. Don't be that person, says Peter. But verse 10, he flips it around. Be eager to be something else. Therefore, my brothers, because of the warning I've just given you, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. There's another phrase that you can just dwell on for a while. God calls you. God has elected you. He's given you everything you need for a godly life. Now he wants you to confirm that calling and election. Now it doesn't mean that your calling and election are not sure, that they're not secure, He's not saying that you need to earn your salvation or sort of guarantee it somehow. I think the idea is about working out the consequences of your calling and election, about achieving the purposes of your calling, reaching the finishing point of your calling, proving the genuineness of your calling. Don't simply take what Jesus has done for granted. Do that and you're blind and forgetful. This is a warning that Peter gives to people in churches. Now, something that I've seen after a lifetime around the church is that people fall away. It's heartbreaking for pastors, I can tell you. People give up on Jesus. They don't last the distance. It's the parable of the sower lived out. They start strong, but they get distracted or they get caught in snares, or they drift away, or they're corrupted by the world. I've seen it in dozens and dozens of people. People who look like Christians, but jump forward two years or five or ten and they're living completely away from Christ. They didn't plan it, but they didn't heed the warnings like these. They didn't make every effort. They weren't all the more eager 
It's not easy, so make every effort. It's not easy, but it's worth it. It's worth it now. Everything you need for life and godliness. What a picture. It's worth it now, but it's also worth it in the future. And it's that final day that Peter wants to encourage us with. To make sure that we see and remember it. The reward of persevering to the end. Look at how he finishes this section, verse 11. If you do these things, you will never fall and you'll receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. It's that promise of a, of a warm welcome that will keep you making every effort. Even when it's easier to give up. Uh, let me tell you about American long distance swimmer Florence Chadwick. Uh, 1951, she became the first woman to swim the English Channel in both directions. It, it wasn't immediately after each other, which would have been an exceptional feat, but the first to uh, do both. And she broke the women's world record each time she did it. Uh, the following year, she attempted to become the first woman to swim from Catalina Island off Los Angeles to Long Beach, California, 34 kilometres. Now, compared to her other swims, it should have been relatively easy. Uh, but after 15 hours swimming on a swirling, foggy morning, she gave up and she climbed into her support boat, exhausted, 800 metres short. 800 metres short of a victorious homecoming of cheers, of warm blankets and hot sweet drinks. 800 metres short of a triumphant rest. Why, why did she give up? She stepped out of the support boat and faced the crowds and the media and she said it wasn't the waves, it wasn't the cold, it was the fog. The thing that stopped me was I couldn't see the shoreline. If I'd known how close I was, I could have made it. If only I'd known where the finish was, I could have kept going. Don't let that be you. The finish line is close. Don't give up. Make sure that you arrive. Jesus is promising you, if you are his child, his, uh, one of his family, a rich welcome. A welcome that's way better than a warm blanket and a hot drink. A welcome where he wraps his arms around you in love and glory and goodness and says, I'm so glad you made it. I gave you all that you needed. I've prepared a place for you. You've participated in my nature. You're productive and effective. Well done, good and faithful servant. Make sure you know him. Make sure you participate in his nature. Be all the more eager to make sure of your calling. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for these words that give us knowledge. Knowledge about you. Help us to add, uh, to, to use that knowledge, to participate in your character, to participate in you, uh, to know and be involved in your goodness and your glory. We pray all of this for the honour and glory of Jesus. Amen.